The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8, through chapter 10, verse 15. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of reason against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for every one is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, And against the people of my wrath I command him 
to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hanath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Donna. Now pray with me as we uh, dive into his word this morning. Father, uh, thank you uh, that you're a God that has spoken to your people. Uh, you do not allow us to walk around in the darkness, but you give us your map. Um, you, you give us your truth that we might uh, view all of life through. Um, and we also give us, you also give us your truth that we might allow it to read us. And so I pray this morning that that's precisely what would happen, that you would lead us, you would guide us, but that you would also expose us by your word. Father, I need your spirit. I cry out to you. Would you be present in this moment? Uh, would you work in mighty ways, accomplishing your purposes, not mine? Oh God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you change us? Would you give those that don't have faith? Would you, would you produce faith? May it well up in the hearts and maybe even surprise some this morning. And Father, I pray that you be with those that are hurting and, and maybe even those that are skeptical. Would you meet them in their hurt and in their skepticism and breed faith? Father, would you bring down the proud? Would you lift up the humble? We look forward to what you're going to do. Uh, because you are a God of your word. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, the passage that we have before us this morning is it's a tough passage uh, because it's a passage dealing with discipline. Uh, the discipline 
um, of God upon the nation of Israel through uh, the armies and, and the nations of Philistia and Syria. And what we see here is that, that God is willing to stop at nothing to get the hearts of His people. Why? Because He is a cruel God? No. Because when our hearts are centered on Him, when we are looking to Him by faith for life, we will find life. But when we are looking to our own hands, when we were looking to the things of this world for life, we will have death. Uh, and, and so we see that, that God is disciplining His children. And we need to understand that discipline is different. There's a real distinction between judgment and discipline. Judgment is retribution. Judgment is a sentence. There's nothing relational about it. However, discipline, which it can incorporate a bit of judgment, is highly relational and it has tremendous purpose. You see, the purpose of discipline is restoration. It's to get at something in our lives that we need to let go, that we might get more of Him, that we might move from death to life. And we see this here in chapter 9, verses 12 through 13. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, His anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. God is bringing uh, discipline on, on the nation of Israel um, through the nations of Philistia and Syria to turn their hearts back to himself. You see, discipline assumes relationship. It assumes relationship between God and his people. And there's no better place of seeing that than in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, the writer of Hebrews does a masterful job in helping us understand a lot of Israel's history and Judah's history, um, especially the passage before us this morning. Listen to Hebrews 12, um, 5b through 11. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have, uh, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be, the subject, uh, be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than present, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Dear friends, discipline is, is for our good, and yet, every son wants to throw off discipline in the midst of it. The father that Isaiah um, introduces, the everlasting father, in, in, um, early in chapter 9, is willing to come after us. Uh, there's literally nothing that he is unwilling to do and allow in our lives to draw our hearts back to him. 
And this is troubling and it's complex, but it is essential that we understand it. So, so we have to begin with this first point by just uh, laying down the reality that God disciplines his children. And, and what better context to discuss it than the one we're in right now, this, this pandemic? Um, and, and one may ask, because it brings up so many questions that the scriptures answer. And one may ask um, the pertinent question, and that is, did God cause this pandemic? And, and the answer is yes and no. Um, we, we can't say no. We have to say yes. Why? Because even in Isaiah, in chapter 6, um, he gives us this vision that God gave him of, of a holy God that is lifted up, enthroned in heaven, uh, overlooking the entire world, the entire universe, the one who is surrounded by a multitude um, of seraphim with two wings they're covering their eyes, with two wings they're covering their feet, uh, and with two wings they're, they're, they're flying, and yet they're singing, calling out this, this, this chorus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. He reigns supreme over the world. He is omnipotent in power. He is sovereign in His rule. And yet He is good. And so we have to say yes. <laughs> we have to say that there's involvement by God in this pandemic. And yet we have this, um, this, this seemingly contradictory reality that he is also holy and not evil. So he can't work evil in the world. Is this pandemic evil? Absolutely. It is part of the fall. It is the curse. It is not good. It is not right to call this good. And, and we kind of see this tension in the scriptures, even in this own passage. Isaiah refers to Philistia and Syria as the ones that are um, causing the oppression and the invasion and the death and destruction around the nation. And yet, in the same breath, uh, verse 3, uh, excuse me, verse 13, we read this. His, referring to God, hand is stretched out still. So the nations are responsible, and yet God's hand has something to do with the nations being responsible. Theologians refer to this as the permissive will of God. You see, could he have stopped the nations? Absolutely. And yet, is he the cause of the nation's sin and, 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 and aggression and pride and arrogance and, and, and bloodthirstiness? No. He has simply given them over to their nature. And so he has permitted them to do this work, and yet he is sovereignly ruling over it. it it's the same with this virus. Could God have stopped the microscopic parasites uh, from morphing into this virus and then finding a host body where it could reproduce and spread um, first person to person and then maybe house to house or business to business, street to street, and then utterly to the entire world? Absolutely. Because he had stopped it? Yes. But did he cause it? No. He has given this world over um, to such uh, disruption, disorder, 
even to the level of cells, even to the level of viruses and sickness. And so God is reigning. He, he has allowed it, and yet we have to know, since He is the Holy One of Israel reigning high on His throne, He is not asleep. He is very much awake that He has purpose in this virus. I think John Newton said it best. He said, everything is necessary that he sins. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Everything is necessary he sins. Nothing can be necessary he withholds. God is very much at work. And what we see throughout the scriptures is in the, in the lives of his peoples, he's at work disciplining us. I was watching one of my grandchildren, my grandsons, uh, within the last couple weeks, and he just learned to ride his bike. Um, and so we're out back, and we have this little roadway. It's an alley behind our house, and, um, and he was riding up and down the alley, and he just learned to turn. And so he was turning, but he wasn't doing so sharply, and he got really close to this wooden fence. And I could tell that handlebar was getting close, and I, I said, you, you need to slow down you need to not get so close to the fence but something in him just thought it was fun and he kind of laughed at it and I kept warning him and warning him and finally I just had to let him experience what would happen if if I let him go <laughs> and that's exactly what happened the inevitable the the fence caught his handlebar he goes down now he had a helmet on uh, I'm not a mean grandfather uh, in fact I'm just the opposite uh, you see Here's the choice. Uh, the choice is protect him from everything, every result of his actions, or let him understand that, that, that he is not the wisest one in the world. He had this attitude of, oh, I know more than my grandfather. I know more than Bapa. And he needed to understand that, no, he didn't. And, and, and in order to live, in order to prosper, in order to flourish, he needed to listen to me and to the voices of authority of those around him so that he would not be entrenched in pride and entrenched in that arrogant attitude, but, but broken from it, uh, disciplined in a different direction. And sure enough, he got back on his bike, a little blood on his knee, but he was okay. And he rode around and he didn't get close to that fence again. Discipline. This is what we're talking about. Oh, that we would be as responsive to the discipline of God as my grandson. We read in, in verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Is this pandemic God's discipline? Absolutely. It's certainly not his blessing. It is definitely his discipline. However, here's what we need to, here's how we need to approach it. We don't need to say, yeah, it is discipline, uh, or it, it's, um, it, it's judgment on the world. If the world would just get it together. No, discipline, did you hear it in Hebrews 12? Discipline is for his sons. Discipline is for the church. Discipline is for the house of God. Not those evil people out there, but those evil people in here. And so the, the proper response to discipline is to look in the mirror. It's not to look at your neighbor. It's to look inside here. See, discipline is for his children. And this may be troubling to some. 
Namely, the, the question comes up, I, how can I trust a God that allows bad things to happen? But do you understand that that is the argument of a child? L let me explain this or, or illustrate this. If, if little Johnny wants to go to a birthday party, but right before he leaves the house, he lies to mom or dad, um, what's the best thing mom or dad can do to little, little Johnny? It's to keep him from going. It's to send him to his room to discipline him and keep him from going to, his, to the party. Maybe to go to that extreme. It, it, why? Because he doesn't understand the severity of a life of lying. We do as adults. We do as parents. We understand if he lies when he gets his job, he'll lose his job. If he lies to his, his spouse, uh, he, will, he will possibly lose his, lose his marriage. If he lies to friends, he will lose his friends. It will, it will produce um, destruction. And yet, what does little Johnny say when he's kicking and screaming? You don't love me. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. No, the parent who doesn't love their child is the parent who refuses to discipline their child. It's much easier to say, oh, Johnny, that's okay. We all lie. It's, it's just fine. You can go to the party. And that pattern begins to be more and more entrenched in Johnny's life. And he is destroyed. Why? Because the parent was more selfish than selfless unwilling to, to allow a little discomfort, forego or, or withhold a, a life of discomfort um, down the road. You see, God, we can't say that He is unloving when He disciplines us. It is coming from a heart of love. He finds no joy in it. He finds no delight in it. But He finds um, uh, less joy and less delight in our sin and in our, our dysfunction. You say, I'm, I'm offended by this notion that there's sin in my life or sin in the church that God would, would go to the extreme of a pandemic to try to root out. Well, is there sin in your life that is so deeply rooted you simply will not face it? The answer is yes. <laughs> I have a friend who has a son who has been addicted to alcohol and drugs for many, many years. And he just now, after hitting bottom after bottom after bottom, he just now has admitted that he's an alcoholic. You see, all of those years of denying it, of denying what everybody else around him saw and knew, caused destruction in his life. Friends, is God after something in our hearts? Absolutely. And you see, it's our pride that keeps us from admitting that. It's not uh, being so intellectually progressive or enlightened that, that you know, we, we just don't believe in a God that, you know, this ancient God centers in the hands of an ancient God, you know, kind of view of Him. And yet, friends, that's not progress, that's regress. Um, pride is at the heart of all of our sin, and it's the pride uh, of what um, it's pride that God was getting at in His people. Verses ten through eleven of chapter nine: The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. 
And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. This is pride. How are you responding right now? Some of us are acting like we're on vacation. And I get it to a degree. But friends, God is not just giving us a different change of pace. He's giving us a season where we can stop and be still and, and, and look deeply in our hearts and say, Teach me, God. Show me now what you have not been able to show me in, in times of prosperity. Show me now. Do what you must. You see, that is the heart of a good son. That's the heart of a good um, daughter. Root out this sin in me. Help me because I'm a dependent creature. I'm a, I'm a child. I'm a lamb. I'm a sheep. I'm not an adult. I need help. Has that been your posture? Well, then secondly, we need to understand. You're like, okay, well, help me understand what, what God might be getting at um, in this. Second point, God's loving discipline should always result in good, not just for you, but your neighbor. Say, Richard, what, what do you mean? Look at verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. What is a prime cause? One is pride and arrogance, um, you know, the, the love of, of control and power, making treaties with foreign nations and so forth. But that's not the only sin. Look at the sin that's pointed out in these verses. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people of God had been uh, complicit and, and, and responsible for laws being put into effect that further oppressed the poor, uh, that, that, that further um, hurt and destroyed their poor neighbors among them um, in Israel and Judah. And, and this had been a, a repetitive sin. Um, Hosea and Amos are contemporaries uh, to Isaiah, and, and, and so this has been the message to Israel, is they are part and parcel to being an unjust nation. Uh, God's people that are to be a light to the world God's people that are to overflow with blessing to their neighbors have become just like the nations, power-hungry, wealth-hungry. Oh, we'll make money and then we'll be kind to the poor. No, they, we, we are to be a, a just community and this is what God has been trying to root out of His people for, for centuries. And friends, this is what God continues to want to root out of His people for centuries. God's heart is unequivocally for the financially poor and oppressed. 
And to know God, let me say it as clearly as I can, to know God and to be changed by God cannot be void of God moving our hearts toward those for whom His heart bleeds and burns. You say, Richard, well, if that's true, then the church is in a horrible condition. Exactly. It was true the entire nation of Israel and Judah. They were in a horrible condition. And we are in a horrible condition. And, and just as God was saying, wake up, He's telling the church today to wake up to how our sin hurts our neighbor. You say, well, I, I just... Help me understand this. Well, let me read a quote from Michelle Alexander in her, her book, The New Jim Crow. Listen to what she said. She said, when we think of racism, we think of Governor Wallace of Alabama blocking the schoolhouse door. We think of water hoses, lynchings, racial epitaphs, and, quote, whites only, end quote, signs. These images make it easy to forget that many wonderful, good-hearted white people who were generous to others, respectful of their neighbors, and even kind to their black maids, gardeners, or shoe shiners, and even wished them well, nevertheless, went to the polls and voted for racial segregation. Our understanding of racism is therefore shaped by the most extreme expressions of individual bigotry, not by the way in which it functions naturally, almost invisibly, and sometimes with genuinely benign intent when it is embedded in the structure of a social system. The devil has done incredibly effective work on God's children. And he's done this. He's done so by doing this. He, he has played an amazing trick on us as white evangelicals. So much so that he has turned our heart or, or made us look at uh, the second commandment, love your neighbor, and, and, and us think that we are obeying it and fleshing it out when we are taking a casserole to our neighbor as opposed to um, bringing justice for our poor neighbor and our oppressed neighbor. We think we've done something when we've taken a casserole to people who can afford it, as opposed to laying our lives down for those who really need our acts of, of love and sacrifice. Friends, in fact, the devil has done such an incredible work on the church he holds us in, with such a tight grip that for me to even preach biblical justice from the Bible is to automatically be discounted as a uh, socially or politically uh, liberal, which is an indictment that most white conservative evangelicals literally cannot withstand or to be accused of preaching a Jesus plus gospel, or to be accused of succumbing to cultural pressures around me and around us. Friends, I have been accused of all of those things often, 
and recently. And yet, one would ask, Richard, why do you harp on this message of justice? And there's only one response. Because the Bible harps on the message of injustice. I, we are preaching exegetically. That means verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Isaiah. I didn't even do the preaching calendar. Michael Davis is to blame for me preaching this sermon this morning. And yet, friends, it is clear, it is pervasive. This is the heart of God, and to ignore it, 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 it is not to um, in, in, in any way um, be more faithful, but it's to be unfaithful to the gospel itself. You see, if, if we are not teaching the, the justice of God, if we're not seeking to expose to, through God's Word um, the sins of, of men and women today and how we are uh, driving uh, racism and, and oppression of the poor, then we are not preaching the biblical gospel. Because it's preach, to preach the biblical gospel, you have to preach law and grace. And yet not only grace. Grace means nothing apart from the law, law and grace. And yet, what we need to hear, though, is it's not enough just to preach it, we have to live it. And the primary thrust of this text is not political activism, but it's communal in focus. You see, God is not um, 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 passionate about, His aim is not to, to create political activists, but sons and daughters who love each other to the point that we are not excluding some, we are not doing end arounds, we're not um, you know, um, taking um, the, 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 uh, the option of on the Waze map or the Google Maps, you know, it gives you sometimes one, two, three. We're not taking the, uh, the, the um, um, route of, of least resistance, but we're taking the route that we know is going to bring us into the lives of those that, that maybe we have avoided in the past. You see, this is what the gospel does, but it produces community. I, I fear that we are raising um, a, up a generation that is um, politically active, that, that we're, we're seeing more activism, but are we seeing more um, and better community among the people of God? You see, God is concerned about the community of His church. He was concerned about Israel, not the nations. And yet, as Israel would repent and come back and, and be a community where the poor among them was exalted with respect and honor and equity and so forth, where, where um, one was not feasting um, to the exclusion of those starving and hungry, then that would show the nation something different. And this is what we must be about, dear friends. This is what we must be focused on. And, and this is a significant problem for us in the church today. I can't tell you what specifically God is saying to you through this pandemic, but what I believe what He's done, what one thing that He has done is He has allowed us in, in taking our control away, He has allowed us to be able to relate to the poor among us. It doesn't matter how hard I work right now. It doesn't matter. None of my, in, my white privilege, my influences, can, uh, means anything in a battle against this epidemic. 
in this pandemic. And, and I get a feel, I get a sense of the helplessness of that. That's the life. You know why the poor are like, this is not really different from my normal life. Now we, middle, upper class people, are getting a taste of it. That we might go, ah. Oh. That we might say, okay, I get it. I understand. And we might be the community of God. Well, how do we do this? Thirdly and finally, change resulting from God's discipline is fueled by Emmanuel. In Hebrews chapter 12, before the writer of Hebrews gets into this whole notion of discipline, he says this, and this is what chapter 12 is is known for. Um, He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, it's only by looking to Jesus that we can receive discipline as sons and daughters. And and Isaiah is doing the exact same thing. The first several verses of Isaiah chapter 9 are all about the one who's going to be born. It's about gloom, but a light has dawned. Oh, there's gloom in the nation of Israel, but a light has dawned. A child has been born. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of of His rule and, and, and His peace, there will be no end. The government will rest on His shoulders, and there'll be no end to His rule. There's hope. Now repent. And friends, it's the same way for us. We must understand that we have a a Savior who has suffered and died for us. He's not just the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But He has secured that peace by how? By being the suffering servant. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 53. He writes this, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Do you see this, dear friends? How does looking to Emmanuel, how does looking to Jesus empower repentance this way? Religion says, here's the law. Go be good and kind to the poor. Understand your pride and your arrogance. Understand how you're pushing toward God. Get it together and then maybe God will come down. But no, 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 that is not the God of the Bible, dear friends. God does not applaud us or or move toward us in direct proportion to our obedience. He does just the opposite. We are the one that that caused his wounds. Um, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We have not performed well for him. 
And so what did he do? He came down. He said, Father, I know your law is set in stone. So I will come down and I will live under it and I will obey it completely in the place of my sons and daughters so that as they receive me by faith, as, as they are reconciled to you, Father, through faith in my finished work, their sins are forgiven because I have, been, I have atoned for them, I've paid for them, I've been crushed for them, and yet I have also obeyed the law for them that you might view them as righteous. Dear friends, in the midst of how you live with a blind eye toward the poor, in the midst of how you live a blind eye toward the sin of your life, your pride, your arrogance, how you are seeking for control, how you are, 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 are um, grasping um, for control during this pandemic, God is saying, I get it, and I came down, and I lived in your place so that the Father now can be loving you. And it is love that should motivate a heart of repentance. It is love that, that should drive us to the heart of God. You have given your life for me that you might possess me as a son. You're loving me right now. Father, I need your help. I need you to come help me change. Not that you might love me more, but that I might be uh, the kind of son that you would have me be. That I might trust you and walk in the way of life, not death in the way of truth, not lie. Do you see that, dear friends? Is Jesus precious to you this morning? Uh, will you do what we're about to sing? Will, will, you, will you cry out to God and, and, and ask Him to, to, to drive you to a point, to do whatever He must to drive you to a point where your knees are bent before Him, where His love has been laid down on the cross and He can come and, and, and bring power in your life for change and for good? Friends, sometimes the only way He can do that is by removing what we depend on that we might ultimately depend on Him. Would you come to this Savior this morning, Christian, unchristian? Repent and believe in a God that loves you and is using the suffering of your life to draw your heart to Himself that He might bring you good, that He might bring you life. Dear friends, that's the hope of the gospel. And I beg that that hope would be unleashed in your life today. Amen. Father, we pray this morning that you would open our hearts to your word. That God, we would receive your discipline as sons and daughters. Do what you must to, to get more of us, O oh God. May we stop withholding. May, may we come with open arms. May we bow before you saying, take me, take me, take me, all of me. May we not fear you as an enemy, but may we fear you as a, a good surgeon who wants to bring redemption, restoration, and healing. God, do your surgery in us today. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Dear friends, uh, may we now respond to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by bringing our tithes and our offerings to Him. Uh, we may do so right now by taking our phones and texting downtown church, all lowercase, one word, to the number 73256. Choose congregational giving or possibly in addition to that, you can do two contributions, one um, for congregational giving, then get off and do another one to the Mercy Fund. Um, but give and respond to His grace by doing so this morning.